Holy Father, right now we ask that you would just move in our lives and in our hearts. Father, you have an incredible dream for us to make a difference in the world. Father, every time I look at, at our, our church and I look at the, the, the stage, when I look at Juan and he tells the story of the broken family, and I go, man, he, he, he's got a beautiful wife, he's got two absolutely beautiful kids, and, and he, you've been good to him. And Father, when he says, I had hard past, I know what that looked like. I remember him being in foster care with a mom, foster mom, that would have Christmas gifts for her natural-born kids and send the foster kids up to the upstairs and lock them in there on Christmas Day. So I know that Juan never heard the voice of his father until the last couple of years. I know that his mom was a drug addict and prostitute who left him in vulnerable, dangerous situations. That's why he lost them. But yet, Father, God had a dream to save Juan, and somebody who's already saved reached out to him, and it was a high school student. And Father, on our leadership team, we have Craig, you know, we've had Craig and Shante. They were one father in high school. Uh, most of our leaders at the Crossing Church were one either in high school or college. And so, Father, I pray it for the group that's here this morning that they will have a vision of how important they are. And Father, again, that they don't discount it and go, well, that's not messed up. I'm not brave. I'm not strong. But they'll know that you, Father, you give the power to those who will trust you and who will be willing. This morning, we're talking about apathy and how it kills dreams. And God, I pray you'll help me to do a good job in teaching, and you'll help them do a good job in applying. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we did the seminar, and I'm supposed to sort of stay behind this, I think. When we did the seminar, we were talking about, okay, let's have these lessons on dreams from the scripture. And so, you know, the song that we use with Aerosmith is Dream On, which is in my generation, by the way. We used to rock to that whenever I was in high school. And all those guys are old men now, but the song's still cool. But it's more than just a song. It's something that God calls us to do. But most people that I know who have a dream lose it. And that's a sad reality that God is a dream giver and Satan is a dream stealer. And he uses a lot of things to steal it. And with some of it, it can be like we talked about in the Rima, something that could happen on the outside to where you just get so crushed that you, that you just don't think you can do it. But very often, we participate in sort of handing our dream over to Satan. We may still we ha have a dream and we may, may even profess that, that it's there. Sort of like a husband who's been married to a wife for a long time says that he loves her every night, but then he goes out and has an affair with different women every day. Yeah, he says that he goes through the motions, but the truth is he didn't really love her. And because of that, he's never going to get really anything out of that relationship. It's a lost dream that he had when he got married. And so as we talk about how do you, what's some of the things that you guys do to hand over your dream? Where Satan does just come in bold and, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, kill your parents. And we've had people who's, you know, again, with Adam who spoke last night. Uh, Adam's parents uh, were on the way to a, I, I thought it was a birthday party, but I think it was a shower for a baby that they were about to have. And Adam's oldest daughter and... The uh, mom and dad were in a car on the way to the baby shower at the church, and they never arrived. The daughter survived. Mom and dad died. Never saw them again coming to a baby shower. Followers of Christ, that can, that can rob your dream, right? That's ripped out of your hands. But this morning, we're talking about one that is super common among 
every person who becomes a believer, but it's especially true, I think, for teenagers and college students. And this morning we're talking about how apathy, it's not ripped out of your hands. Satan, it's not a violent thing that goes on. As a matter of fact, it's a very gentle thing to where you just sort of put it out there and go, hey, and then he takes it from you because you're really just sort of have this dream in words only. Now, apathy, if you want to know what that means and what the word means, it can be defined or described in a lot of ways. It can be described as being passive to where you're just not actively involved. You have a passivity about you. It can be described or defined as being lazy, to where you have a laziness. One of the things that you'll see in Scripture is that no dream comes through to the person who's lazy with a dream. just doesn't happen. And even the Bible says that, you know, that, that, that someone who, 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 is, who is lazy, will they'll, they'll fold their hands and they have a goal, but then they end up starving to death. They never reach their goal because they starve. Not because there's not a harvest that's out there, but because they're too lazy to get it. For years, and in the King James Version, it was described with the word sloth. And we know the animal sloth, and if you see the sloth, you know you know how slow it moves. A sloth, whenever it's angry, will make a sound, and when it makes a sound, it goes, ah. And a sloth, when it was bored, it'll make a sound, and it sounds like, ah. And when the sloth is super excited, it makes a sound that goes, ah, okay? There's no difference. And all of you know a friend that's like that, right? You know, they say that same speed, you know, no matter what, they're like, ah, yeah, that's right. You know, no excitement. But the word sloth really had to do with this discontent. And it was used to describe, in the, in the, in the Hebrew, it could describe a bow that was completely ready. That there, somebody was out hunting, and I don't know if anybody in here is, you know, some of the guys maybe have been involved in deer hunting. And if you're a bow hunter, you know, before you get there, if you're a good bow hunter, you make sure that your arrows are sharpened and that you make sure that your bow is strung properly. And you're in, your, in the tree, and you're there because you're all ready because if you, you have this dream for a great buck, you know, that you're going, I'm going to get the biggest mount and, and on the, put it in the wall, and I'm going to show all my friends who don't care, but it'll be cool. But you, you, you have the bow strung, and you have the arrow sharpened because you know that you've got to be ready. Because the dream may be available to you, but if you're not ready, you'll miss it. <coughs> It's sort of like, you know, getting dressed up when you're wanting to go see somebody. You know, there's a guy or a girl that's someplace where you're going, and you know, man, I really like this guy or girl. So you get ready. You know what I mean? You get ready. You're not just going to school ready. You are going to capture your prey ready, all right? And you've got, you check your eyelashes out, and you make sure the earrings are right and everything matches. And then you make sure when you walk in, you are looking to present yourself, right? Because this is your dream, and you know if you aren't ready and involved, you may miss it. So it's a picture, that, that, that's, the ap- that's the opposite of what apathy is. Apathy is the idea that I don't really care that much about this, and because of that, I don't do much to achieve this. And when you look at, at what the Bible says, apathy is the inner cause it's the motive with us. We just don't care the way we should. We're just not committed the way we should. We're not involved the way we should. Apathy is the inner cause, and laziness or a lack of effort is the outward effect. And here's the thing. People are active in things in one area, even though they may be apathetic in another. As a matter of fact, 
if you're not careful, you will give your passion to something, and in giving your passion to something, you'll take it away from something else. You guys have ever been around, if you happen to have a father or a mother, an aunt or an uncle, a drug, deal, a drug user, an addict, you will find that one of the signs of somebody who is a drug addict is that they will have less and less concern with the things that they used to be concerned with, and they'll be more obsessed with the things that they are trying to get into put in, to put in their system. I had a friend one time, and, and we was talking about, is there anything you've sought with all your heart that you've been passionate about? And when I was studying the Bible, and if you guys have been through the Seeking God study that we use, you know that's part of that Seeking God study. What have you sought with all your heart? And this guy kind of chuckled. He's like, oh, yeah. And I said, why'd you chuckle? He goes, well, it wouldn't count. I said, well, yeah, well, tell me what it is. He goes, no, it wouldn't count. I said, what is it? He goes, cocaine. And I said, so you were passionate. You were, you were involved. You were excited about getting cocaine. How'd that show up? He goes, I thought about it all the time. I was thinking about either using it at this moment or finding some place. He said, I spent tons of money. And I said, really, how much money did you spend? He goes, I don't know exactly. I've got a pretty good idea. But I know in the last two years, it's about $265,000. a week he was spending. And the reason he knew is that a lot of it, he had refinanced his house that was paid off and put it all up his nose. During a time when he was crazy about that, guess what he was with his family? Apathetic, he didn't give a rip about them. He didn't care. But it's not just with drug addicts. If you know someone who is, is a gamer, and I don't mean you know a professional gamer, but if they're just, and I loosely use the word addicted to gaming. You can have somebody that you guys that know, probably this group, that you guys, when you get on that game, you come alive, you're involved, you're engaged, you are feeling, finding out a million ways to achieve your goal. But you can't figure out four plus four, plus four in math, right? And it's not about your ability. It's you just don't care anymore because something else has stowed your purpose and you're apathetic about everything else. And so my challenge as we talk this morning is to make sure that we were being what we need to be and being excited about our spiritual commitments and we're getting involved with our youth groups and allowing our youth leaders to equip us because we're not supposed to be a bunch of lukewarm people that get together. And sin is something that you guys can get excited about. You guys are going to high school. Some of you get excited about Parting, and you will lose your enthusiasm for God. You've watched it happen. I've watched it a hundred times. You may get excited about a boy or girl, and you'll become apathetic about your spiritual life. You may get excited not about a boy or a girl, but you'll get excited about sexual experience. You don't really care or give a rip about, and guys, but just to be honest, girls, you need to know that most of the guys who get involved with you for a one-night stand, they don't give a rip about you. It's not some expression of their care for you. Now, it's becoming more and more to where this is a two-way street. But what they care about is sexual pleasure and the thrill of the conquest. They're like a lion who's found its piece of meat, and you just happen to be that thing. But I've watched both guys and girls, guys getting involved, and girls so deeply want to be loved that they'll look at a lion that's getting ready to pounce on them and think that this is a really cute lion. But when you get like that, all of a sudden, you're, not, you're so involved and intense in your desire that at that moment, you don't care at all what God says. 
It's not that you can't say no. It's that you don't care to say no. You just flat out don't care about God. You care about you. And here's the thing. The problem with that is the Bible says that if you sow to the flesh, if you fulfill, you know, whatever you want, you get what the flesh wants, he says, you'll reap a harvest of destruction. So we have to make a choice to not be apathetic, to be lazy, to be distant. Let me just read you a quote from an old author. He says this, sloth can be described as many different things in our society. Henry Fairley says that sloth is often expressed in this world under the polite name of tolerance, but in hell it's called despair. It's just, it is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, remains alive because there's nothing for which it will die. Someone reminded me this week that people used to have many things that they'd be willing to die for. During World War I and World War II, young men would lie about their age in order to have the opportunity to fight or die for their country. Today we may still live in the times of war, but it would probably be in order to have the right to flight, not to die. He says, man, there was a time when, when we were committed. There were some things that mattered so much that we would die for them, and now we'll die for nothing. And there was a time in the church. There was a time in our youth groups when we would, we would fight Satan, and we would fight to be what we would do. And that time to where we fight for anything is over in many of your hearts and your life. You don't care anymore. And you know you don't care because somebody has to do all the fighting for you. I had a friend that had a yellow note, notepad. It wasn't a small notepad. It was an eight and a half by 11, you know, one of the legal pads. And he went through one. He was finishing up one during the time I knew him. And during the time I knew him, he started the second. It was a list of all of his friends that he had tried to sponsor that either died by drug abuse or had died in drunk diving accidents. And one of the things that he said, he could tell you any, any of their names, I could point to any page, 35 pages of dead people. He was a heritor when I added it himself, who had been defib twice, heart stopped twice, and he made it. When I met him, we got started studying, he became a Christian. All those pages of dead people, I became close to him, I started working with him, we had a member of our church who was a crack addict, worked for one of our members. He had stole their car, not taken it without permission, their van he worked for. He had been missing for a couple of days. I saw him in a neighborhood, saw him go into a crack house in a neighborhood not very far at all, two blocks from where we live. So I went in to that crack house and drug him out of there. And he was really hesitant to begin with. No, I'm not coming out, you know. And I grabbed him by the collar. He was big enough. He'd been in prison for several times. He could have beat me to a pulp. I drug him out. Took him to my house. Talked to him. Gave him some coffee. Later on, Bert, my friend, came over. And I thought I'd done something really noble. And when he came in, he had heard that I'd went in the crack house and drug a guy out. A guy named Vernon. And I thought Bert could really be proud of me. You know, the heroin addict he is, and I'm his friend, and I've, you know, I've been working with him and these guys. And he sets me down and he literally just begins to go, you're an idiot. You're, you're a fool. You think you've done something good. You've done nothing good. You just went and drugged somebody up. He goes, when you got in there, you had, to, you had to fight to get him out, didn't you? I said, yeah. 
He goes, let me tell you something. You will never stop him using drugs until he walks out on his own because you can't, no matter how hard you fight for him, until he starts deciding he's going to fight, nothing's going to change. And for some of you in the youth group, I want you to know, you've got great youth people around you and they fight for you. But your life is destined for a brokenness unless you decide that you're going to fight. Vernon was a, this guy that went in, 5 foot 10, about 240 pounds. He had muscles on his earlobes. All he did for six years was work out every day. And yet he lost the battle, dying on the street later on. Because he wouldn't fight for something that mattered. And somebody else would. Nobody can save your dream for you if they have to fight. If somebody's fighting for you harder than you are, you are going to lose because they can't have that dream for you. So let's talk about how does that happen and what do you need to do. And I need a clock here. What time am I supposed to be done? Does anybody know? What? 12? 12.50. 50, all right. 12.50. We started a little bit late, but I'll still try to get us out a little bit early. Probably not. Okay. But let me read you a passage of scripture about a church that had become apathetic, all right? You can write the verses down. It's in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. I'm going to be reading from a paraphrase of the scripture, which is somebody who takes the original Greek language and says, let me put this in words that describe the feel of the text. It's not, you wouldn't use this to, to, to build your theology, but it's great for storytelling. And it's in the book of Revelation where the Holy Spirit is writing to a group of Christians, the churches. The church is just simply a compilation of Christians. And Revelation chapter, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 and 19, he says this, Write to Laodicea, to the angel of the church, God's, yes, the faithful and accurate witness. The firstborn of God's creation says, I know you inside out, and I find little to my liking. You're not cold. You're not hot. Far better to be either hot or cold. You're hot or cold. You're stale. You're stagnant. You make me want to vomit. You brag. I'm rich. I've got it made. I have nothing. I don't need anything from anyone. Oblivious that, in fact, you're a pitiful blind beggar, beggar threadbare, and homeless. Here's what I want you to do. Buy your gold from me, gold that's been through the refiner's fire. Then you'll be rich. Buy your clothes from me, clothes designed in heaven. Then you'll cover, you won't walk around, uh, you've walked around half naked long enough. And buy medicine for your eyes from me so that you can really see. The people I love I call to account, prod and correct, and guide so they'll live at their best. So up on your feet then, about face, Run after God. Now, let me give you some things that you have to do. He's got a church that he says, you're not hot or cold, you're lukewarm. This particular city lived, was in between two cities. One of the cities would have a, had, a, had a system that would allow hot springs, hot water to flow through the aqueduct that they built. Have you ever been to hot springs? Anybody ever went to a natural hot springs outdoors? Raise your hand if Colorado or anything. It's really a weird thing because there, there's, we go to one in Colorado and they pipe it up out of the ground. I mean, it's, it's cold. I mean, as far as it's 10 degrees outside, even if it's 20 degrees below zero, you sit in this pool and it will burn your butt. I mean, you, it, some people just can't. It's so hot. They're going, who's heating this? It just comes out of the ground. And there's like four or five pools that trickle down. And there's one place where you can go that's really cool because it's right along a creek and you can go down in the winter 
And literally, you can set with ice floating down this little creek, and you're setting in water about this deep in sand, and the water is coming up so warm that you have to shuffle because it's burning you, and you're watching ice float three foot in front of you. So some people got rich by going, let's make a hot springs. We'll make pools. And so it filters all the way down, and with each pool, the ones at the very top is the hottest. But from that pool, it drains into the next pool. And from that pool, it drains into the next one and into a next one. So the very top pool up here is hot. Guess what it is down here? It's lukewarm. You can swim in it. You can walk into it without any adverse effect. It's warmer than the 20-degree weather around you. So there's a benefit to this up here that he goes, man, this is, this is really cool. It's, it's therapeutic. Well, in this area, they're piping it in, and there's, they also want cold water in that day. In the time of Jesus riding, cold water was rare. You had to get it from a spring that wasn't hot. They didn't have ice boxes. They didn't have the ability to freeze. So cold water was refreshing. Hot water was therapeutic. And in between was lousy. You guys don't ever go, hey, give me a, a glass of lukewarm water, right? You know, nobody does. If, if you've ever started to take a pill or something, you know, and you think the water's cold and it's warm, it's like, man, that's nasty. So that's what's going on in this situation. And let me tell you, though, so he's going, you guys are, you're not good. You don't refresh anybody and you don't heal anybody. If it would be better for you to be cold or to be hot, but to be nothing, you know, man, it'd be great if you were just challenging the fire out of people and pushing them on or if you were just hugging them and loving them. But you don't hug and love and you don't challenge and push. There's a problem. You're apathetic. You just don't care. Where does it start? How to deal with apathy? Number one, if I'm going to deal with apathy, I have, to, I have to accept God's authority. Because here's the thing. People that are apathetic generally, we don't care what he says. My parents used to get, me, get on to me about things, and I rarely changed. You know why? I knew it was my dad, and I knew he was going to be gone, so he wasn't going to, you know, my mom was, was at home most of the time. I didn't have to do anything because I didn't accept their authority. So in the beginning of the verses we just read in Revelation 3, it says this. You're supposed to write to this church, give it to the messenger. That's an angel. The word just means angel. And he says, here's what you need to know. That, I, that the one who is speaking to you is the faithful and accurate witness. Now, the reason he's writing to this faithful and accurate witness, he goes, I want you to know, this is God speaking. I'm faithful. I have nothing against you. By my reproduction, what I'm saying to you is faithful. If you take a picture of someone and it's faithful to that person, what will it look like? It'll look like that person. If they're making a goofy face, you'll get a goofy face. If they are, if you're listening to music and it's playing on a radio, if it's high fidelity sound, high faithfulness, that's what fidelity means, it'll sound like it's supposed to. It won't be distorted. So what he's starting to, he's saying with is, you guys need, as I speak, you need to know I'm not some idiot, I'm not a moron, I'm not a fool, I'm the authority over your life. I am the faithful and true witness, the firstborn of God's creation, and I know you inside and out. And he says, I find little to my liking. Now I realize that's to a church 
But realize the church is made up of individuals. So God is writing to people that are in the church, people that are in a youth group, and he goes, listen, you need to know this is God. I'm right. My, my words are accurate. And I know you inside and out. And there's not a lot that I like about you. There's not a lot that I see that makes me feel good about you. And as he goes on down, he says, you're neither hot nor cold. You're stagnant. You're stagnant. There's no movement. There's no refreshing. You just don't, you don't care enough about anything to do anything. And you need to know that when God speaks about these issues, when you are called out by scripture or by a youth leader, your natural response and mine was always to fight, to try to justify, to try to excuse. Honestly, for, for me, man, you have never met a more manip manipulative teenager than I was. For those of you who know my background, I was always in trouble no matter where I was. Whether it was in church, whether it was in school, whether, everywhere I was, I was, in, I was in trouble. When I was in high school, they had a behavioral disorders, the crisis classroom for problem children. I was in it for days, certain days, not, not a whole semester, but every semester of high school, I was sent to go to the crisis classroom for a number of days, every one. And man, I manipulated and I lied and I made my teachers, I made the professor, the, the, the principal and the superintendent think I was something I could manipulate them. But it didn't change the fact that who I was is who I was. And if who I was hadn't have changed, I have no doubt that I would have at least been divorced. I would not get to see Carrie, my son, and Ashley, my daughter, on stage singing. I wouldn't get to know Jackson or Kennedy, or Lincoln, or Malachi, or Hattie, or Gabriel. I wouldn't get to know them because I would have been a mess, and I would have been at least divorced and probably in jail. Because I didn't just do, I, I, was, I, I was threatened with that because of some felonies that I committed in high school. But in trying to manipulate them and trying to convince myself that I'm not that bad a kid, that I'm not really, I'm, I'm, I'm not that bad, it all came crashing down when I had to finally accept the authority. I had a man who found out that wasn't related to me, didn't dislike me, didn't care, but he happened to be a person who was a cop, a sheriff. And he assured me that he had the evidence and that if one more thing like this happened again, he would make sure with all that he had that I'd be sent away. And all of a sudden, with the evidence before him and with the promise, he said, but if you stop right now, I, I, you'll never hear it again. The authority had to step in. For some of you, you're, you're evaluating who you are and you're defending self, yourself and you need to stop. You're lukewarm. You're apathetic. You just don't care that much. And by the way, one of the things that you can care about, you can tell how, you care, how much you care about God, is how much you care about other things. And how much are you willing to invest in other things like relationships, like sports, like all of that kind of stuff. For me, I was a semi-athlete, kind of. So you have to accept God's authority. When he speaks about this stuff, no arguing. No arguing about how he says it. I don't see much good in you. You can go, I can't believe God would say that about me. He's saying about you because it's true, if that's you. And for me as a teenager, it was. With, he didn't say there's nothing good. But he said, there's not much good. And by the way, if you don't address that issue, there will come to where there will be almost no good. Secondly, I have to acquire God's attitude about my sin. 
There are some sins that we just go, hey, I know that's wrong. Right? We go, it's just wrong. Like we would all go, it's sinful to murder somebody, right? I'm not talking about self-defense. It's sinful to murder somebody. And with that sin, we would all recognize, oh, yeah. But then when we begin to deal with some other things, we go, well, how about anger? Is it a sin to be angry? And some of you who know the scripture might go, well, it, it is, but only if you're out of control. So that is a justification sometimes to say, it's not a problem. But you know what we know? We had a girl in our college group at Carbon at Alton when we were there who had a sister who had an anger problem. The girl that became a Christian had an anger problem. The girl who became a Christian worked on her anger problem. Her sister apparently didn't. They got to fight one night, and while her sister didn't mean to hurt her, but when she picked up the knife and stabbed her in the neck, it cut her artery, and her sister died. Why'd she die? Because somebody stabbed her. No, somebody died because they didn't care about their anger. <coughs> that was the motive, and the stabbing was just how it worked out. So we look at killing, and you go, oh, that's wrong. But we don't look at anger as wrong, going, hold it, there's a danger there. With apathy, apathy, you see, it can be that you're not, you just don't care. It's not that you're doing a whole bunch of horrible things. It's not like I'm doing a bunch of stuff that's wrong. It's not, but you're doing, you're not doing a bunch of stuff that's right. And if that describes you, if you're not a big sinner, but you're not a big believer, that's apathy. And you need to know how God feels about that. Because you go, I ain't that bad. That's not how God feels about it. Notice what happens here. He says, you're stale. This is a message paraphrase. You're stagnant. Stagnant. You make me want to vomit. Kind of gross and chunky, right? You know what I mean? You go, Ugh. We all know what, how we feel when we're about to, You remember, I remember as a little kid, the worst kind of puke is chocolate milk puke. You know what I mean? Somebody's had their, somebody's had their, their breakfast and then they, some guy at school thinks they're going to prove how many chocolate milks they can drink, you know, and they're bubbling with each, you know, and it's going, and then you see, it, see them begin to turn, and then it comes out and it's all over the table and the floor, and it just stinks up the place, right? Well, for a moment, understand that the body is removing that from the system because it's going to destroy the body if it's not gone. God says, listen. If you don't get over your apathy, I'm going to have to vomit you out. Why? Because if you're not removed from the body, you're going to destroy the body. That's not a little thing. That's a message paraphrase. The, the literal translations are a little bit more. That is, so then, because you're lukewarm and either hot nor cold, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Not a lot better. Let me read you a parable out of Matthew chapter 25, 24 through 28 to give you more impact on how God feels about this slothful, lazy indifference. I'm not really that bad, but I'm not good. I'm not going to do some things that are really wrong because I have some morals, but I'm, going to have, I'm not going to do anything that's right because I don't really have any commitment. The Bible tells the story of a man God gave three men that God gave talents to. One had five, one had two, and one he gave one one. The five went out when the master came back a few months later, had made five more talents. Talents was a money, a, a, a kind of money like a dime or a nickel or a dollar bill. The guy that invested it and came back with ten, and God goes, awesome, you've really applied yourself. He gave to the one who he gave two, he had made four, and then he came to the guy he gave one. And the Bible says the man who had received one bag of gold came, and again I'm using 
a modern speech writer, one talent, one bag of oil came. He said, Master, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. So here is what belongs to you. I didn't grow it, but I didn't lose it. I didn't do anything in real life. I didn't go to the strip club with it. You're right. You're not going to have to worry about finding any woman's panties in this bag, okay? But you're also not going to find any medicine that I bought to help the poor. I just kind of buried it and protected it. And here's your dollar back. I was afraid. I knew how hard you are. So if I lost it, I wouldn't do it. So I didn't invest it. I just hit it. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. He says, your problem was not that you were afraid of me. If you were afraid of me, you would have done something. Your problem is you didn't care about me. And he describes him as wicked and lazy. He goes on to say this, so you know I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. Well then, you should have just put my money on deposit with the bankers so that I returned I'd have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him, give it to the one who has 10 bags, for whoever has will be given more, and they'll have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him, and throw that worthless service into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God's opinion of lukewarmness and apathy is not like ours. Oh, it's not that big a deal. I'm not a bad guy. I'm just not a good guy. I'm not a bad girl. I'm just not a good girl. And he says, no, here's God's word. If you're like that, he goes, you know, quite frankly, you're just kind of a worthless girl or boy in the kingdom. And the sad truth is he knows you're going to lose it all anyway, so he takes it from you, not because he doesn't care about you, but because he knows it's going to be wasted, so he'll give that dream to somebody else who will fulfill it so somebody else can be blessed. Never give a crack addict cash. Had a guy that came by my house regularly when I lived. We lived in a part of the area that was not far from the worst area of Alton. Came by regularly, he'd see me out, he'd say, hey, Robert, he called me Robert, and they said he called me Pastor. Pastor Cox, can I, can I borrow $5? No. But I'll take you down to Jack in the Box and buy you lunch. Because he'd always say, can I borrow $5? I haven't had lunch, I haven't had anything to eat, I want a sandwich. Nope, you can't, but I'll, buy five, I'll give you $5, I'll, I'll take you down there. Well, well I, got, I got something I need to do, but I'll be back. That went on and on and on. I loaned him my lawnmower, and he pawned it. Really, and I found it. He said he, somebody stole it, and I went to the pawn shop two years ago, and he sold it to him. Talked to him about it, said, "Hey, you pawned my lawnmower." And then when I talked to him, he said, "When he came to borrow the new lawnmower I just bought, for real, come buy your mower." No. Why? Because you're gonna pawn it like you did the one from the pawn store that I found in the pawn store, my old one. Oh, oh, oh it wouldn't start. So you pawned a lawnmower that wouldn't start. What'd you get? Two bucks out of that sucker? And so it finally came and we'd go, hey, can I have $5? And I'd say, what do you think my answer is going to be? Because we talked a lot. I really did love the guy. Like the guy a lot. You're going to tell me no, Robert. You're right. Why am I going to tell you no? Because you know that I'm not going to get a sandwich. You know that I'm going to the circle and I'm going to get some booze and I'm going to drink it. And you don't want me to hurt myself. You got it. So how about you letting me really help you? I wouldn't give him the money. Not that I care about him. We'll kill himself. 
and other people. And in the kingdom, God says to some of you, listen, you want blessing. I'm not going to give you blessing because all you're going to do is hurt people. And some of you, honestly, guys, and I'm not trying to be rude, and this is about some of the stuff with our youth group. You've already designed the blessing that God gave to your parents and gave to you. When people come into the kingdom because you're so apathetic and lack such commitment, when they come into the kingdom, you are not a blessing to them. You endanger them because of your lack of commitment. Sloth, indifference was viewed as one of the seven deadly sins at one time. Did you know that? You ever see the movie Seven? I can't recommend it, I don't think, although it's a really good movie, okay? It may have some language or something, in, but it's about a serial killer that kills people with the seven deadly sins. And he uses sloth to kill him, and it's really gross, but for a kid, whenever I was watching, I was a kid, but as a young guy, I'm going, man, that's gross, that's awesome. We don't think of sloth as a seven deadly sin, but God does. Number three, I, after we've, I've got to accept God's authority, I have to acquire God's attitude, I have to address my arrogance. He says, you're, 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 you think you got it all together. You brag, I'm rich, I've got it made, I have nothing from anyone. I'm oblivious to the fact you're pitiful, blind, you're a pitiful, blind beggar, threadbare, and homeless. You see, what they looked at themselves in the mirror, and they looked at their clothing, they looked at their physical health and go, look at me, I'm something. Maybe with a little bit of flex. You know, you know those guys? I have a grandson, you guys most of you know Jackson. And every now and then when Jackson by a house, I'd find him looking in the mirror. Flexing. And you know what I mean? Some of us, you know, for me, there may have been a day whenever I was like that, you know. But I don't worry about flexing, you know, because, you know, I might try to do the wave, you know, with my stomach or something. But I ain't flexing in the mirror, you know. Hey, look at that. I can do the wave all by myself. But that's these guys. They looked in the mirror and they had their clothes on, you know, when, they go, when, they, when they're going to school, they're looking good. And honestly, when they look in that mirror, they look and go, man, I look pretty good. I got it together. And God looks at them and with an uncertain hands, no, you're, you're not. You're, you're a loser. Literally, you're going to be a loser. You're going to lose my relationship with me. You're going to lose everything that matters to you because you don't care about anything other than yourself. And as he speaks to them, the weird thing is when he confronts them, can I let you know, when you're being confronted with sin in general, but apathy in general, apathy specifically, the right response is not, I'm fine. I think I'm okay. I'm not that bad. Now, they said, I'm fine, not in the sense of I'm just fine, but fine like it was used 30 years ago when you're talking about somebody who will go, well, she's fine. That arrogance. And I've listened to some conversations. I hear you, you know, youth, youth leaders, you know, addressing you guys. And rather than just going, hey, I was wrong, you argue. And it's not always a loudmouth argument. It's just kind of this arrogant attitude that says, it's not that big a deal. I got this. And God says to this church and to the apathetic, you got nothing without me. It is all an illusion, and you better listen or I'm going to remove what you have. In Obadiah 3, the Bible says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. It's the idea of blinding. When you're pride, you can't see anything. When you have that struggle. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride leads to destruction and ignorance to a downfall. So if you want to be someone who is blind when they fall, just be prideful. 
If you want to be someone who can see what's coming so you don't fall, be humble. You need to abandon the pride. Then finally, I have to act. I have to act on God's advice. I got to do something. He says to them, the people I love, I call to account. Prod and correct and guide so that live at their best. Up on your feet then. About first, the face, that's return. About face and run after God. Up on your feet, turning around and running after God's, none of those are marks of maturity. And as he challenges them, he says, there's three areas I want you to do this. Here's how you do it. He says, I'm, I want you, number one, I want to make sure you work on your heart. He says, buy gold for me. Gold represents an internal thing that's been purified in Scripture often. He says, wear white clothes. That means you work on the things. The heart is what only, you and see, only God can see and you know. Work on that. Don't work on fooling somebody. As you work on that, change the way you live. Put on some different clothes. He's not talking about whether you're modest or not, all that, all that. There probably is some reference to that in the particular culture that's there. But he says, start when people see you. Let them see somebody who cares about Christ. And he says, and they get sad for your eyes from God so that you can see. He goes, you need somebody involved in your life to help. You need something other than just you to see. You've got an eye problem. And you don't want anybody else to see it. And you need to be concerned with seeing it, and you need to get some help seeing it. And I think so that's kind of the idea of, man, let somebody else help you listen to what God has to say. Listen to them. I love you guys. I don't know all of you, but I know what it is to struggle as a teenager. I know what it is to put your hope in things that have no hope. I know what it is to feel like I'll never be able to make it, but what I'm telling you guys is you will never be able to make it as long as you remain apathetic. So I'm going to challenge you to start pushing yourself as hard as the people that lead you push you, and even harder. And for some of you guys in the youth group, you guys are not seven anymore. You guys are, why don't some of you guys who have been around a while, rather than being someone who's drowning all the time that has to be saved, why don't you decide you're going to get out of the crap and you're going to be someone who is now the person who is going to not drown, jumping into the pool of sin, but instead you're going to be someone who's strong and is going to be keeping others out. Be men, ladies, be mature ladies. Start imitating those people that God has put in your life. And let's have this group's compulsion, a good peer pressure that says, no, nah, that attitude of apathy is not going to be tolerated. I'm going to be something better. I'm going to care about God and his things, and it's going to show. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, the teens that are here. And Father, I can speak bluntly to teenagers because, man, I can, I know the things that turn me around. You know, whenever the, when the sheriff talked to me, he wasn't rude, he was just honest. When my dad found out, my dad wasn't rude, but it was hard hitting. I still remember him pulling up after the sheriff had told him, which the sheriff lied. He told me he wasn't going to. But I still remember looking at my dad and him crying and him looking at me in the eyes and saying, I'd rather be dead than have a son like you. And it all of a sudden hit me. I'm not just mischievous. I'm not just okay. I'm in trouble. And Father, it's the message to the Laodicean church that he's going, man, you're not just mischievous. You're not just struggling with weakness. You don't care 
and you're in trouble. The great news, he didn't write all the stuff to condemn them or us. He did it so that they would do what I did whenever I was confronted by that harsh reality. It was at that moment in my heart that I began to change. And I've never been perfect since that moment, but I've never been the same as I was before that. I began to try to fight for myself in the way that others had tried to fight for me. Not near as many others as these guys have, but a couple of others. And God, I pray that we'll be like that, knowing that when we decide to stand up and fight the the fight of faith, you will connect us with others who will help us, and you will empower us to do it. The greatest churches that we are yet to see can come out of the teenagers that are in this room right now. The salvation of thousands can happen if they can replace their apathy with the excitement of doing what you want them to do. Help it to be, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.